0: this is nothing but a giant twilight
1: zone episode for me that's a huge change to the dracula lore oh absolutely of course you can see it play out it just becomes it just becomes one of those facts about vampires
2: it's all about you that's right sunday monday happy Humps, ready to race to you. Hey, Fonzie, does that song mean that we're finally going to talk about 50s horror? <laughs> Correct a mundo. Correct a mundo. <laughs> you knew that. Welcome. This is the Fright Club podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from madwolf.com. Yes, it's finally it's one that uh, has been asked for for a while now because. When we first started this podcast, I think we started off, some of the first podcasts we did were of the decades Mm -hmm. from, what, 60s on.
1: Right. And we didn't start with the 50s because I hadn't seen enough movies from the 50s. Because
2: it's all about you. That's right.
1: So it took a while for me to catch up and see enough that we could put together a, a manageable list.
2: Well, not only that, but we've also had a few comments and a few emails said, hey, how about the 50s? Oh, no, exactly. Yeah. And one was one of those was signed A. Fonzarelli. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do it. And we've got a lot of help from uh, our friend Dark Dave. So he's going to be on for our guest host and our special guest. And he's, got, he's a good one for this because he's got a lot of interest and expertise in that area.
1: Well, So this is his third time on the show. And uh, we've always really covered classic horror with him. So we did a Vincent Price episode. We did a Hammer Horror episode. So when we knew we were going to do a 50s episode, we, we went back to Dave to help us out.
2: Yeah, so Dave is standing by. Good stuff. And we got to say, what are we saying? Thank you for last week when we did Fright Club Live, and a great man. I'll, I'll be honest. The crowd surprised me for peeping Tom.
1: Right. you didn't think that we would get that big. Well, of I wasn't now. sure.
2: Yeah. I just wasn't sure, and boy, they came through in a, in a big way.
1: And I'm not sure if they showed up for the movie or they showed up for the countdown, which was on prostitutes.:
2: Yeah, the word <laughs> got out. Hey, uh, they're, they're talking about the whoas. So uh, everybody no, it was it was a lot of fun, great crowd, and everybody was really receptive. Of the movie, even though watching it today, as we said, it's kind of weird. It takes you a few minutes to get into this vibe, like it feels so different watching that movie now, but in the end, by the time it gets to the end, you're like, oh yeah, this is this is well done.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's a really good movie, and I'm glad that people seem to enjoy it. And our friend Dizek had to miss it, because uh, very often he has to go to Texas, and he doesn't, but usually when he is in town, he comes to these, and we miss him when he's not there, so we were giving him a hard time online, and then so was Old Man Spencer, because that's what they do. They give each yeah, other- Yeah, but he wasn't there either. Exactly. <laughs> so come on. clean up your own
2: backyard before we start throwing stones there, Spencer. No, we'd love to see you guys whenever you can make it. So that was fun. Um, by the way, I don't think we've mentioned a couple of times, if you're digging these Fright Club tunes, find us on Spotify. We've got that Fright Club Hits playlist on Spotify. We'll have to make a part two so we can add exactly. cool songs like the Happy Days theme. <laughs> but uh, as of right now, we have the one, Fright Club Hits. Check it out on Spotify. So we're talking about the '50s, and what's cool is we each have our own list. There's no overlap, which means we've got a five, and Dark Dave has a five. Uh, so we're going to talk about ten cool movies from the '50s. All right, is that is that where we're at? Are we ready? Ready to roll? Dark Dave is standing by as our guest host. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Why don't you? So since we uh, were all together the last time, you have a new podcast that's really just you Then the others that we've talked about before, right? Be Movie Bros and we've had them on and you used to be sort of a a frequent co-host on their show, and then uh, the same with Black Hat Shadow, but now you have one that's just all yours, Dave's Pop Culture Podcast. Tell us about that.
0: Oh, so I just wanted to create a show that I could call Dave's PCP. That's all it was. <laughs> no, it's a, I'm a scatterbrained individual. I have so many different interests, and I told the guys, I was like, look, I don't, I don't want to not be on these shows, okay, but I just got to do this show so that way when you guys are editing, or if maybe you can only put out two episodes, I can maybe do three a week over here, and did I mention I like comic books and cartoons and Sci-Fi and all these things and it just made sense to do something else that way I always had something to do. All
2: right, cool. So that's your latest project and we're glad you found time to join us today because you have a special interest, interest, as we said, in the 50s horror and we'll talk about that, how you got into it uh, a little bit later. But let's just start counting them down. You want to? This is one uh, where we start off with uh, Dark Dave's Number five, and as we said, they're all different. So we're going to talk about 10 different movies, which is cool. So uh, what do you got for your number five?
0: Great way to start off my list is a movie that features Richard Boone. It's from 1958. It's I Bury the Living. The reason that this movie makes my list is because this is nothing but a giant Twilight Zone episode for me. And since that's one of my favorite shows that has to be one of my top five favorite films, this movie centers around a cemetery. It completely gives you the Night of the Living Dead feel. So it has all these things that add up to it. And the thing, you know, the character is Robert Kraft. Richard Boone is the perfect example of a guy who is losing his mind.
1: This is one that I had never heard of before. I You talked about it on another podcast at some point, and I jotted it down on a list that I keep by my computer of movies I need to see. So you're the reason I saw this in the first place. And it's funny that you say that. It, you're right. That's exactly the feel it has is of a Twilight Zone. An elongated one, but one that keeps your attention the whole time. And it's funny, and I don't—it's it's funny to say this about a movie that's, you know, 40-plus years old, 50-plus years old, that I don't want to spoil anything, but I don't think a lot of people have seen it, so I'm not going to spoil that sort of, you know, Twilight Zone twist or anything— but what winds up happening to this poor man, to poor Robert Kraft, it's terrible. It's terrible that they
0: did that. Yes. Some things that I love, too, are the visuals that they use in there because you have, you know, I've never been inside kind of the wheelhouse of the cemetery. But, you know, you got to imagine they have the whole thing mapped out and you kind of get insight with this movie. And it shows the whole graph, if you will, the whole map of all the grave plots. And then you have some pins marked the ones that are occupied and then other pins mark the ones that are vacant. And it just comes down to what happens if I start playing with these pins and I switch them around. And so many times they bounce around with, you know, topics such as like voodoo and resurgence to the point where he feels like he's bringing the dead back to life.
1: Yeah, it is. And and the performances are really good. They've got that 50s feel about them. But I think a little less so than some of the others. Like, it's, it's not super-duper campy, except for Andy McKee, the like the groundskeeper Willie of the cemetery. <laughs> He's a little over the top, but in a very fun way.
0: Yeah, and I feel like it was probably for a reason. And the one thing I want to say is, did you guys happen to see that it was directed by Albert Band, who is Charles Band's father?
1: Yes, and if you've never—if if you if you ever have the desire to watch an incredibly bad movie— he also directed Dracula's Dog, which I can't recommend lowly enough. It's so
0: funny you bring that up because on Dave's Pop Culture Podcast, I had did an episode where somebody was related to that film, and one of the things I said was, I don't think I've ever heard of this.
1: It's not bad in a good way.
2: <laughs> it's bad in a bad way, but not, uh, not I Bury the Living. That's from 1958, Dave's number five. So we'll move on to our number five, one that was just added at the last minute. Hope was juggling different titles, and this one got in at number five. It's the classic American nuclear weapons testing results in the creation of a seemingly unstoppable beast, the original Gojira from
1: 1954.
2: So the first thing I say about this one is that we're not talking about the Raymond Burr, Godzilla, King of the Monsters.
1: We are not, Right, because no.
2: I remember as a kid, that's the first one I saw. So I think a lot of people still get them confused. This is the original Japanese version.
1: Well, there's a reason to get them confused, because all that is, all the Raymond Burr version is, is the original, Honda's original film that they splice up and they add Raymond Burr to randomly.
2: Right, exactly.
1: Is Which is kind of... Whiplash-inducing, really. But, no, it's the the original that um, I, I wanted to have on the list. And it's interesting because, as you know, my numbers four through one were pretty locked in, and I had, like, six movies bouncing around at number five for a while. So, um, I you know, my apologies to The Blob and The Fly that finally just got the boot in favor of the original Godzilla, which is, you know, it's such an iconic film. It does now, you know... This, this this much later, look a little silly, you know, at times when you look at it. But not, I think, as much as people remember. I mean, it's the sequels that wind up looking a little bit uh, goofy in the way they have the guy in the suit and the tiny buildings, you know, and things like that. But the original, I think, they balance the effects that were practical effects and not incredibly well done with, with uh, a story and with actual footage of some nuclear testing or some bombs and things in a way that I think... Um, fits it maybe better than people remember. And it's um, the acting is really quite good for a movie from the 50s. I'm not saying that the acting in the 50s wasn't good. I'm just saying that, you know, sort of since method acting came out, really probably before any of us really started watching movies, there is such a an obvious change in the, the cinematic style of movies from the 50s and movies after the 50s. But I think that the performances in this movie are, they're a little campy, they're a little hyperbolic, but they're very touching, I think.
2: Yeah, and it's obviously a, reaction, obviously a reaction to the nuclear age of the time. And uh, you mentioned the effects. It was actually, at the time, very ambitious for the way they went after these effects with the suit and everything. And it was actually one of the, if not the, one of the very first Japanese films to be completely storyboarded because the production was so complex for the time. And one of the things that I love, because you know I love sound mm-hmm. and, and sound mixing and everything, how they got the beast... Roars, you know, the sound there. They tried several different things and couldn't get it. So they finally came up with rubbing a coarse resin-coated leather glove up and down the strings of a double bass, and then reverberated that sound. Wow! <laughs> thats I think that's fascinating how they come up with these. But, yeah, you're right. You have to watch it kind of like we watched Peeping Tom, you know, with an eye on the times. But it's still, an incredible and, and thinking about what they had to work with at the time, such an effective production and so groundbreaking, and it was so influential, you know, even today.
1: Incredibly uh, influential. Because really, if you think about it, I mean, almost every sort of era in in film, and certainly in horror film, there's there are themes, social anxiety themes that you can pick out. And Godzilla was really the beginning, the ushering in of the monster movie, the sort of Scientists go awry and now we have these. And then and then and after that, after Godzilla, that's almost all you found. It was really hard to find a horror film of the 50s that isn't, you know, attack of the crab people or, you know, some other giant monster that science has created that now man has to deal with.
0: I agree with you guys. The funny thing is, is I'm just not a huge fan of the astronomical monsters, you know, the ones that take over the city. But if you have to give it to one, you got to give it to, you know, the original Godzilla film. Uh, I say that because I have a hard time pronouncing it the actual way that you pronounce it, (laughs) but this thing kickstarted such a large franchise and they're still making Godzilla films to this day. I mean, they're slated out past 2020 and you know, the, like you said, the effects are amazing for what they're able to do. It holds up to the true fan base, which is a large fan base that do follow these films. But that's another reason why when you look at my list, you'll notice that, I can't give love to every Jack Arnold picture, which is why, again, giant monsters. But there are the human-sized monsters are kind of the monsters for me.
2: Gotcha. And that's our number five. Just under the wire, beating out the fly and the blob and a few others. But it came time to finalize that list. So uh, we chose Gojira, our number five, from 1954. 54. All right. Moving up to number four uh, on Dark Dave's list of the 50s.
0: So... The one thing I like to pride myself on is I try to make a list of films that, one, I do love, but two, that people haven't heard of. Just like you mentioned, I Buried the Living. And so for my number four, I'm doing the same thing. It's from 1957. It's The Monolith Monsters. So I actually stumbled on this movie in a half price books in the clearance section on VHS. And I was like, and I'm a collector. I still collect VHS. Mostly those covers, you guys have seen those you know, VHS battles. Absolutely you know i took it home and i watched it and i'm a sucker for the the small town horror films where the community comes together to defeat you know one thing and this movie centers around geologists who basically discover a rock in the desert and they've never seen it before it's like a piano black glossy type rock what they noticed is it starts growing and they can't figure out why the rock is growing and if you haven't picked up on it, that is what the monolith mon- – yes, this movie is about giant rocks that kill people. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> but more than that is you can't touch the rock. And if you do, you become a rock yourself. Yikes. And so you have people in the town that if they're exposed to the rock – I think you have children that play with rocks in this movie. You have scientists studying rocks. You have rocks that tall tall buildings, and when they fall and crumble and break and they spread out through the town, it's going to touch people. And you have farmers, and it's just so cool to see something so simple. You know something from the the minds of these creators to to create a movie based on almost nothing that actually solidifies a true horror. You know because this is kind of like a early you know like a twister or like a you know weather based horror film where it's a catastrophic event that's taken over the town.
1: And but at the same time, it's it's a contagion film, right? It's uh, it's one of the epidemic films, like any kind of a zombie movie or anything where you know so it combines the two types of horror which is interesting because i'm going to guess that having come out as early as it did it, it's if it's not the first one to do it it'd be one of the first
0: yeah and one thing that i absolutely love is you know when you have those kind of movies you always have to wonder how are they going to beat something that's bigger than themselves and the coolest part is is it's not figuring out what stops these rocks it's figuring out how they can use that solution to their benefit and it's just really cool. I won't give it away, but it's really cool to see what they, you know, come together with and it gives you a, a pretty nice ending.
2: Very cool. Number 4 on Dark Dave's list, The Monolith Monsters from 57. Moves it up to a number 4 on The Mad Wolf list and this one was from 1956. A small-town doctor learns that the population of his community is being replaced by emotionless alien duplicates, The Original Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
1: Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same
0: incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you!
2: They come from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super-scope screen.
1: those 50s sci-fi horrors you know that is done so well and part of it is because you know I mean they they made so many they made so 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 many in the 50s and they just churned them out in the studio system low budget you know nobody actors nobody directors but this one is directed by Don Siegel so it's it's early in his career but he's the same guy who went on to do the shootest done a bunch of stuff with Clint Eastwood a bunch of stuff with John Wayne you know and it looks Great. You know, it, and it has that wholesome, small town look about it. And the vibe is really pretty scary. It's also got a great cast. Kevin, Kevin McCarthy, a very, you know, that guy, plays the, the main character, the doctor who returns from abroad to find that things are not exactly the way they should be in his hometown. Carolyn Jones is in it, right? Uh, Morticia Adams, she plays... This uh, you know, this sexy wife. Uh, she's hilarious in this movie. She's always just like she needs a drink. I need a drink to calm down, you know. And one of the things I like about the movie, of course, you know the the story because it's been it's been remade in a great 70s version of *Age of the Body Snatchers*. But the uh, themes have you know some movie like *The Faculty* from the 90s, which is great, and it's still the, it's the same basic idea. But in this one, what they really focus on. Is, you know, so there are pods and when you fall asleep, the pods start to look like you, then you die and then the pod is you. And that's it's been it was very much a a Cold War terror at the time about communism kind of infiltrating uh, the United States. But one of the things that I love about the way this movie represents it is. And you can see it in, in one scene where Kevin McCarthy's girlfriend has been potted and, she, and he doesn't realize it till he kisses her. And that's one of the things that's really weird about the movie when you watch a movie from the 50s. It's very steamy. Like right up until then, there's a lot of sexual tension in this movie. And it's so odd. It just, it feels out of place in a in a movie from the 50s set in a small town, but it's done on purpose because that's what they lose, right? That's what they lose when somebody becomes a pod person is that they don't have any feelings anymore. So I love all of the different version, most of the different versions of this story, of this film, because I think it, it can be used kind of metaphorically to represent a lot of different kind of hysterias of of the different times that it comes out but what I and of course I love this one because it was the first one to do it and it did it so well but I also just think it's very sort of sweet in the in the intimate way that it approaches it at the same time a little bit weird
2: yeah and it's interesting that that you mentioned it was pretty clearly a, a reaction to mccarthyism and communism but at the time there was a bit of a different uh, different arguments running Back and forth between Kevin McCarthy, the star, and even the author of the original novel. They were saying that they didn't really see it that way. They saw it as more of a thriller. But Don Siegel, the director, has always said he thought that those those types of political references were inescapable. So he actually tried to mute them a little bit because he thought the story was so easy to read in that way. Uh, which I, I, I do think it is. But it's funny that in the end, he Don Siegel didn't get his way with the ending. He had a, a hopeful ending kind of forced on him. He wanted it to end just when uh, McCarthy was McCarthy's character, I didn't know McCarthyism, uh, was warning everybody, and that was the end. And so the studio wanted a more hopeful ending, so that was kind of forced on him. I think that would have been an interesting way to end it, you know, just being warned and stop it right there, especially in the 50s.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And and when the film has been remade or kind of retooled and presented in later decades and later eras, it always does end on a grimmer note. And certainly the one... From the seventies, right with uh, Donald Sutherland, ends in a you know in that sort of horrifying, just your your stomach bottoms out sort of a way, and it does give it more power. And the thing about the one, this the original one, is that that ending it feels cheap a little bit. It's like oh, phew, and you think I don't know, man, I don't. But it doesn't. I don't think it really takes away too much. But it it doesn't. He doesn't have that lingering power because of of the tidy, hopeful ending.
0: Pretty much on point with you guys there, I loved uh, the whole course of this movie up until the end. I did not expect a happy ending, and whenever he's frantically warning everybody, I thought, man this is just great they're gonna zoom out and I it's just gonna leave you with that sense of dread and uh, they didn't do that and it just totally blew my mind, but you know some of the things that you guys were talking about we talked about. The effects, you know, and the pods. I love the look of just the soap bubble oozing effect coming out of the pods over the people. I thought that looked so cool. And I loved the narration. You know, you often get a lot of narration in between scenes. I always find that really fascinating. Gives me a a vibe to some of the older, you know, horror TV shows. And it's so funny you mentioned the faculty because I also had that down on my notes. I was like, I like how they do the one by one identities. It's like a predated slasher and it reminds me a lot of the faculty.
2: One other interesting thing about this movie is that director Sam Peckinpah actually has a small little part in this movie. And over the years before he died, he was kind of uh, taking more and more credit as the years went on for the script. He started just telling people that he did a little bit of doctoring here and there. And then as the years went on, he started taking more and more credit for the script until he was threatened with filing an official uh, grievance with the Writers Guild of America. And he finally backed off on that. But still, to this day, I think people—some people—give him more credit for working on the
1: script when he apparently really did not. But he wanted the word out that he did. That's crazy. I had no idea, actually, and it's based on Jack Finney's novel. Who, you know, he did a lot of of sci-fi writing in the '50s, and I—I I don't know how much would have, how much tinkering would really have been that necessary, right?
2: Exactly right. They did change the ending, sort of like uh, Jaws. How if you look at the, the the original ending in the novel Jaws, it was so kind of eh. Well, in the original ending of the book, the aliens just give up and go home. They just decide they're... yeah. So, yeah, that's
1: kind yeah, of... <laughs> but if Sam Peckinpah had written it, no way it would have ended with a hopeful, hopeful ending. No way. But
2: I agree. that it, The film... I think would have been actually a lot more political if it would have ended just with being warned. Because then you're basically warning the audience, hey, something's going on here. But uh, they insisted on that more hopeful ending. But still a classic. And uh, our number four, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which takes us up to number three on Dark Dave's list. What are you looking at?
0: It, the terror from beyond space from 1958 you know, I had to implicate at least one sci-fi horror because, like you said, in the 50s, it's monster insanity. And they did, you know, it conquers the world. You know, it came from beneath the sea. It came from space. There's so many versions. And I was like, you know, I really do have to have at least one, some type of alien-ish horror. And I feel like this one was one of the better horror sci-fi blends, not just straight sci-fi movie. And there's so many... Of those movies like war of the worlds and the day the earth stood still but i feel like this one kind of did it best in the horror realm it has a lot of nostalgia but you know it centers around the idea that we've already been to mars and nobody's come back and so what happens is we send another ship and crew to find out what happened only to realize everybody's dead except one survivor and he's saying an alien killed everybody and, of course, there's no alien to be found. Nobody believes them. So they're going to take them and get them court-martialed. But what happens when the alien boards the ship?
1: It's an interesting movie. I had not seen this one before, so I watched it because it was on Dave's shortlist. I loved a lot about it. I mean, there are some of the things that, of course, just very silly 50s era, like the suit, like the monster suit. And also the um, the ship itself and how they basically are just shooting in like three separate, very small boxy rooms and pretending that it's a spaceship that could travel to Mars and back. And I also love the dynamic among the crew because you're watching for a while and there are two women on the crew. And for a long time, you're like, are they just here to clean the dishes? Would they really have two people go all the way to Mars and back just because these guys can't do their own dishes? And then eventually you realize they must be medical officers. But. There is so much about the, like, community that is set up among these astronauts that is weirdly fascinating to me because it's never explained. And and I love that, actually, about it because, you know, a lot of times that just, you know, robs a film so much when they feel like they have to explain every single thing to you. There are also a couple of really good performances in this movie. And then there's this, this part where they're trying to figure out they they know by now that there's a monster on board and they're trying to figure out the best way to deal with this monster and then they just they're like they show shadows of him and he's constantly just dragging one of the crewmen around with him we don't know if that guy's dead yet or not dead yet but he certainly is being swung about a lot and it's so sort of out of character grizzly for the rest of the movie
0: there's one scene where a guy gets trapped and it seems like he's there for half of the movie, and I find it so fascinating too. Because I'm a sucker for you know the the man in the suit, yeah, you know, the mon- the human sized monster in the suit. And it seems like anytime he passes by the guy, he tries to attack him, even though he knows he can't get him. And then he leaves. And then when something else comes back, here comes the alien again. Oh, I'm going to try it again and attack him. And it's so funny to watch him do that. But every single scene that alternates with it, he's managing to get a hold of somebody else. And when I was doing some research about a lot of this, I was like, one, this is such a Star Trek episode, and that's probably why I like it so much. You mentioned the way it looks like just three different sets. Yep, that's very Star trek But then two, there's so much about this movie that it feels like you've seen it before, and I don't know if you guys are going to touch base on it, but it rumor has it, this was a lot of inspiration for the Ridley Scott film, Alien.
1: Interesting. And I heard Sam
2: Peckinpah wrote it. <laughs> 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 at least that's what he said. No, that is very cool. That is uh, number three, It, the Terror from Beyond Space uh, for Dark Dave, which moves us up to number three on the Mad Wolf list from the 50s. It's one we've talked about on at least one other podcast. goes back to 1958 when Jonathan Harker begets the ire of Count Dracula after he accepts a job at the vampire's castle under false pretenses. Don't do that to Dracula. It's horror of Dracula. This is the story of Dracula a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula, the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil.
1: I think we probably talked about it with Dave before because I, I doubt we okay. made it through the Hammer list without right. without this one. But I also think back in the day, it was on our best British horror list. Is a guess that I have that one is a really really old countdown. Um, and I love this one. I love I love Dracula as a character as really does every horror film fanatic in the world. Uh, and I love Christopher Lee as Dracula because he's such an intimidating presence. He's so big. And angry looking. I mean, so many of the other people who have played Dracula, it's it's sort of this, you know, exotic, romantic uh, character figure. But but when Christopher Lee play, puts on that cloak, he's just, just a giant. One of the things they don't take much advantage of in this film is his voice, because Christopher Lee has a great voice. And Hammer, of course, is, is known for its nubile beauties and, you know, the sort of ribaldry that runs through its films. And that's another thing that I really love about this movie is that the females involved are not just innocents being corrupted. You know, I mean, they're... They're part of this. They're like, no, no, I, I pick him. Look at that guy. Like, I pick him. I don't want Jonathan Harker anymore, which I think really complicates the story in a fascinating way. And, of course, Peter Cushing is just his prissy, brilliant self. So this is this is an all-time favorite for me.
2: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because anyone familiar with a lot of the Dracula stories and movies and what have you will notice that this is a very concise version of the story. They had some serious budget constraints and they had to really cut out a lot of things to keep it moving. Like you don't see the big trip, Harker's boat trip over, all that stuff is cut out. And it was funny because even though it had so much of a budget constraint, it actually ended up saving the studio, uh, Universal, from almost bankruptcy at the time because it made a ton of money.
1: It did. You know, and it's funny, too. A lot of times when somebody films a a Dracula, you know, they, they update the story. They change the story. The changes they make to this story are really a little weird that Harker and Van Helsing are both... They're both students of vampirism, and I mean, it's it's weird the way they update it, but it works out really well.
2: And I think one of the most important changes and long lasting changes that made, I think it might have been the first in the novel. In the original novel, sunlight isn't lethal to vampires; it just kind of hurts them and and, and, and uh, mutes their powers. But in this one, it's actually lethal, and that was a that's a huge change to the Dracula lore.
1: Oh, absolutely! And of course, you can see it play out. It just becomes. It just becomes one of those facts about vampires, you know, all the way through until Fright Night, even. It is one of those changes that they made that just embedded itself forevermore in the sort of facts about vampires.
0: All right, so... One thing I have to say is, as you guys know, yes, this was totally on our Hammer Horror film. I knew this was going to be on your list. I just didn't know where it was going to pop up. And the funny thing is, I'm not a huge fan for vampires, but I was like, you know, I really need to go ahead, give this one a rewatch. And I think we're both on the same page where Nosferatu is king of vampires, right? Yes. That's the – okay. And so <laughs> the way I'm looking at it is – can Christopher Lee be second? Because he's going up against the great Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I was thinking too is I remember the way you were talking about Christopher Lee being this menacing, towering presence. And so I looked it up and you know Bela Lugosi was six foot one, which I couldn't tell. You can clearly see that Christopher Lee is huge. He's six foot five in this, so yeah. it clearly towers Bela Lugosi. And you know, I love Peter Cushing. So anytime you get both those guys in there, you're blessed with greatness. Absolutely. And- I love what they do. They always give us that really great gothic environment. It takes me back to the, you know, all the Vincent Price frames, the Roger Corman stuff, so I love the settings, and so I'll have to concur with you guys. It's a great film, and as far as a lot of the earlier Dracula movies, this was one of the ones that really wasn't afraid to show the blood, and so you have that very vibrant red blood coming out of Christopher Lee's mouth, mm. which I think
2: really works. Dracula Horror of Dracula, Mad Wolf's number three. Getting closer to the top here, so let's move up to a number two for Dark Dave.
0: Speaking of blood, I'm going to go with 1959, Roger Corman film, A Bucket of Blood. I love this movie. I've reviewed this movie before when I was tag teaming with Paul. We were doing a special on Roger Corman films, and I remember... I hadn't seen this movie, but I had always seen a poster for it or a DVD cover for it. And I actually had a guy in a video store. It's like, you've never seen that? Man, that's a good one. You'll like it. And I'm like, really? So I just bought it. I remember I took it home and I watched it. And I was tickled to death because I love Dick Miller. And I didn't realize this was the whole start of the Walter Paisley character. And that character, just that name has been immortalized in so many Dick Miller roles, even Chopping Mall, which I've reviewed. But it's such a cool place to hang out. They hang out at this little cantina the whole time. And the first thing I thought was, man, i really like to read some of my short stories there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice little beatnik vibe they have going on in this movie. Um, I, I actually am a very big fan of this of this film as well. And Charles Griffith and Roger wrote it. And of course, then he and Roger Corman went on to do Little Shop of Horrors, which I think you can really... There's a very similar vibe to the, the Corman version of Little Shop of Horrors and, the, and then this bucket of blood. I think you can... They're really cut from the same cloth. And I love... Yeah, Dick Miller's great in this movie because he's so endearing and at the same time hateable. Like there's just so such a bumbling idiocy about him that you want to hug him and at the same time just smack him. Well, here's what I think is funny: so, so he is this kind of uh, busboy sort of dumbass, and he's he's unhappy at the amount of attention these poets are getting at this beatnik club. Uh, and then he accidentally, very accidentally, he doesn't do it on purpose, but he kills his landlady's cat. And then to hot cover it up, he makes a sculpture of it. So it's a cat with a knife sticking out of it. And then people mistake it as art, right? And then it goes on. He's got to sort of keep creating more art. He can't think of a way to do it except for now killing people. But what I think metaphorically is great about this movie is it's very much, I think, uh, even intentionally or not, a comment on Roger Corman's movies. That other people are making this really brilliant Art and Roger Corman is going. I can do that, and he's just slapping some shit together. And people are going, "Yeah, okay," but you know, he's just he's his movies are the cat with a knife sticking out of it. Um, and I think that that even now works when you watch it again. I think the whole movie still works. Another thing that I really
0: love about the movie was how much of a nod it gave me to the Vincent Price House of Wax movie.
1: Oh, definitely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, a very different tone, but a lot of really similar sort of this is how art is being made themes there. And then not
0: long after, Corman and Price make history.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And of course, um, Griffith also wrote Barbarella, wrote uh, Death Race 2000. So he's written in terms of this sort of schlocky B movies. He's written some of the best. A
2: Bucket of Blood, 1959, number two for Dark Dave, uh, moves us up to number two on the Mad Wolf list, one we've talked about at least once before, I think. It's a good one. From 1956, a housewife suspects that her seemingly perfect eight-year-old daughter is a heartless killer, the Bad Seed.
1: Did you have anything? I don't care how small it was. Did you have anything to do with the way Claude got drowned? What makes you ask that, mother? Now look me in the eye and tell me the truth, because I must know. No, Mother, I didn't. You're not going back to the Fern School next year. They don't want you anymore. Okay. I'm going to call Miss Fern and have her come over here. You think I lied to you her. You did lie to her. But not to you, Mother, not to you. Yeah. Yeah, we did this one most recently on mothers and daughters in horror, which we did when we showed Eyes of My Mother, it's another one that, that, you know, sort of like Peeping Tom, sort of like a lot of the ones that we're talking about. When you watch it now, it definitely feels its age, you know. But at the same time, I mean, it got like four Oscar nominations, uh, including Penny McCormick, who plays the bad seed. She plays the, the daughter, who's actually a psychotic killer. And she's, you know, physically just perfect. She looks like the one girl from The Little House on the Prairie that everybody hated with blonde pigtails. Um, Nelly,
2: Nellie. Nellie Olson. That's right. And actually, I just noticed, because Patty McCormick has continued to work steadily up until this day, and I think her latest, her most recent... Project listed on IMDb is a remake of this. It's a TV movie that's in production, I think, right now. It doesn't say the role that she's playing, but I, I have a guess. Uh, but that's interesting that she's going to, you know, come back to the production and take the other role. And I'll be interested to see when and if that finally, you know, sees the light.
1: She, I mean, she was great as Rhoda. And then uh, Nancy Kelly plays, Christine plays her her brittle mother. And she also was nominated for an Oscar for this for this movie. And then there's, and, and so she she's so good the mom Nancy Kelly at um being at this like simultaneously somewhere in her head she knows it's her daughter who's doing these horrible things and then somewhere in her head she's like but we're going to get through it. We're going to get past it. And really, it's funny. It all takes place because the dad has to leave, like has to leave the country for a short time and then all hell breaks loose. And and the mom is just ill-equipped to really deal with what's going on and the daughter is murdering people and you just think is the is the message here that if only there was a man folk present everything would be fine. These ladies are just falling about the place. I don't know. But you know, I really enjoy the movie and I love and again, it's such a such a such a time, uh, sign of the times. There's a an epilogue. There's like a, a title screen that I think is as almost adorable.
2: Well, it's funny you mention that because what that is that is a holdover from the Broadway production because the original ending of the play, Rhoda, the little girl, gets away with it and she does not die. Now they had they were forced to change that ending because of the motion picture codes at the time couldn't foster the feeling that. Criminals were getting away with it, but in the in the original Broadway play, they did, and they realized that by the end of the play, the audience was so mad about that and so worked up is what they worked into. You know how, uh, in a play, they do the curtain call, and you come out and all the actors. Well, for that one, what they had Nancy Kelly do was put Patty McCormick over her knee and spank her, pretend to spank her, and that kind of gave a levity to the audience, let them work out a little bit of laugh because, you know, they were saying the audience is so mad right now that this girl's getting away with it. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's, it's really effective. And it is over, you know, no mama, not to you, not to you, that sort of stuff. It's really pushed, to uh, that sort of, uh, you know, 50s overdramatic uh, way. But it still works, even though I think we would have probably liked it better with the original ending. They couldn't live with that at the time. But that's why I'm very interested to see what this TV movie version does. I'm betting you that they go back and stick with that uh, original ending. I would not be surprised.
0: So it wasn't until you guys told me that this was going to be on the list that I watched it. I had remembered it from previous episodes you had done. I couldn't remember which one it was, but that totally makes sense. And I have to say, after I watched it, I almost had to change my list. I absolutely love this movie. And you sold me. I'm probably going to have to buy it. And the funny thing was I completely agreed. They did the same thing here. I didn't even put two and two together about the code because I was like, no way that this is about to happen. And I even said to myself, wouldn't it be crazy if this and this happened? Even though there's a little foreshadow, but the fact is they still go there. And then when it happens, I'm like, that is perfect. Wait. <laughs> there's still 10 minutes left in the movie. No, 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 no. And then it gets happy again. And I, I see now what you're saying that they had to do it, but man, that's so exciting to me. And then there was little things I was picking up on in the movie. One, you know, they, they mentioned, you know, she's dancing around these little homemade tap shoes and like, Oh, dances like Fred Astaire. And I was like, Hey, that's one of my favorite actors. And then one scene, she's like, yeah, you thrive on buckets of blood. I was like, Hey, that's my number two. <laughs> and they just kept connecting. It was awesome. But I, It was so funny. They were sitting around the table having conversations about killers. And I'm like, I would totally just sit there and talk to these people for the whole time and just give them a run for their money. And I have to say, I I didn't catch the the name, but the drunk mother who keeps popping up was amazing. And the whole time I was like, geez, we have another Joan Crawford on our hands.
1: Yeah, Eileen Hackard, she was also nominated for an Oscar for this movie.
0: And then I love one of the scenes where... It's just put in there like, oh, my horoscope says today is the day for paying attention to small objects and getting things done. And you're like, uh-oh.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh-oh. But yeah, seriously, after I saw this, I went and told my wife. I was like, oh, my God, this is one of the greatest movies I had
2: ever seen. <laughs> awesome. Glad you like that. And that, that's our number two. And before we get up to your number one, let's just you know run over real quickly why you have such an affinity for this era and what led you to, to 50s type of, of horror classics
0: yeah it's so weird you know i wasn't born with this oh i only watch black and white movies but it's something i've always thought about too is like why do i always like these older movies rather than the newer movies it's just an insatiable love it's you know same like rob zombie has i would hope to assume is just you respect a classic it's where so much stuff originates from and there's so much that even though, yeah, they balance some codes here and there, uh, and it alters storylines. But there's so much that they do that's just so frightening, and it always goes back to the you don't always have to show it to imply that it's there. And I just started watching one after another, and a lot of my love was born with the Universal Monsters. You know, all that stuff was just so great, and everybody sees them everybody sees the sequels it creates a whole universe of horror and then you get into a lot of the twilight zone and things and i can just say that it it goes back to gray's my favorite color maybe i'll cheap out and just say i just like the way it looks but just the details you get in high definition black and white movies just the way that a lot of the actors are and i think it's a lot of nostalgia for a time that i didn't get to experience
2: Well, I love that. Gray is actually my favorite color, too. I think you might be the only other person that has said that, that gray is your favorite color. (laughs) So I'm right there with you. All right. Very cool. So that takes us to the very top uh, of your list uh, from the 1950s. And uh, boy, it definitely is a classic.
0: Top of my list could be none other than the 1954 Creature from the Black Lagoon. It is by far my favorite. It wasn't the first, but it is my favorite of the Universal Monsters. I absolutely love this film. I remember taking my oldest son to go see it. They played it in Dallas about six years ago, and we got like a Mondo presentation when we got to see it with the 3D glasses because it was originally filmed for a 3D. Yeah, it was so cool that they did that. And I didn't see this movie till like 1997 which is crazy to think that that was, you know, 21 years ago or whatever, but that's right when DVDs came out and this was like a 30 or 40 dollars DVD and my grandfather's like you've never seen this, you're going to have to watch it. And <laughs> I remember watching it and I was just blown away. Again, you have a guy in a monster suit, but more than that, the underwater photography, the camera sequences with parallel swimming, I mean, so many things just stand out where it's similar to like Phantom of the Opera, you have a creature that shows so much love and but as soon as is mistreated, it just all hell breaks loose, and I actually even had a chance to meet Ben Chapman when he did a convention, oh, where was that, it was somewhere up in the northeast, uh, probably closer to where you guys are, and it was just one of the coolest things, because you know Ben, he played the guy on land, and he doesn't get as much credit as Rico, the guy that played it in the water, but such a cool guy, and I love Julie Adams, she plays K in this, and she does her part perfectly fine, not to mention... Hubba hubba at the time. right?
1: <laughs>
0: uh, and it's directed by Jack Arnold, who it was hard not to make just a top five Jack Arnold list.
1: <laughs> she is great, though. And, and she's an interesting character because she's, you know, she's not just there because she's, you know, lovely. And of course, she is lovely, but she's a scientist and she's really the most level headed and smartest of the three scientists whose who's conflicting opinions are causing such chaos you know, on their trip. And I want to just say, so this was one that I kind of copped out and I didn't have it on our list because I saw it on yours. And I thought, okay, well, that just makes it easier for me to choose among the other options that I had for number five. But I do also want to say our friend Tom is going to be so happy that this is on the list because he loves this movie and he loves this creature.
2: It's a very cool creature. I remember the first time I saw this as a kid, and I don't think I saw the entire thing the very first time, but I thought it was just a very cool, creepy looking creature to build a, a movie around. And uh, yeah, well-deserved.
1: And of course, you know, um, The Shape of Water is more or less a sequel to this movie. So obviously that suggests to me that it's the, the creature from the Loon has some real staying power.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. And that is at the top of Dark Dave's list for horror from the 1950s, moving us up to the top of ours. And it's from 1955. The wife and mistress of a loathed school principal hatch a plan to murder him while having the perfect alibi. They carry out the plan, but then something goes awry. From 1955, Diabolique.
1: Ce n'est pas une histoire de fou. C'est une histoire diabolique. this has been on at least one of our countdowns as well. And I wasn't sure if I wanted this at number one or not. So, so I did, you know, the, the sequence of, of our films moved around a little bit because Diabolique is a, first of all, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie to look at. It is so gorgeously filmed. And there's something um, I think, you know, there are premonitions in the filming that you, you, Visually, you see what's coming next before you even realize you see what's coming next. I also think all three performances are great. Something that I always appreciate is is in any film when the leads are, they don't feel like they have to be likable. Right. So so obviously the uh, the the terrible sort of, you know, headmaster, Michelle, whose wife and mistress are basically friends just to help support each other through his abuse. He's terrible. Uh, He's a terrible person. You're not supposed to like him. But Nicole, the mistress, her presentation, her performance is interesting because you do and don't simultaneously. But then for me, I think the most interesting performance is Vera Clouseau, who was married to the director at the time. She plays Christina. You know, she's got a heart problem and she's very abused. And it's really her money and it's really her school. But her husband is just... You know, running rampant and um, and she gets these moments in the movie where she's just a dick. And I love that because other than that, she's like this weak, sweet, perfect character. And then at the same time, because the performance is much more realistic than that, there are times where she she just really is an unpleasant, bad person, which I love. And I also love... The little boys in the movie, I love sort of their rambunctiousness and and, and uh, because it's set at a school. And I still think, if you don't know the twist ending, that the ending still does work. It certainly worked for—this is George's mom's favorite scary movie. And she said at lunch today that it scared the shit out of her when she saw it when she was young.
2: Yeah, she would have been 25 years old when she watched this and said it was, yeah, terrifying. But you mentioned— uh, the cast, yeah, The Mistress is played by Simone Signoret. Oh, yeah. She's uh, great. Signoret. I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah, she is fan. She went on to a legendary career. But you mentioned the twist ending because this is one of the very earliest examples of a movie having an actual disclaimer at the end. It urged audiences not to talk about it. You know, it's like many, many, many years before The Sixth Sense. You know, it's like, don't tell the twist ending because you want to spoil it for anybody. And it's a movie that it's based on a, a French novel. And the rights were almost purchased by Hitchcock. I guess he wanted them, lost out. Uh, So then the authors of the novel wrote another novel just for him to film, and it was the movie that ended up as Vertigo uh, a couple of years later.
1: So it worked out pretty well for him. Pretty well.
2: Yeah, Diabolique. Uh, And it had that, you know, lukewarm remake with uh, Sharon Stone. Uh, from what was the 90s, -hmm. I think it was. But you definitely want to go back to the original. And that is our number one.
0: I love this movie, too. And I knew this is the other one that I knew had to be somewhere on your list. And it was because it was on a previous list you did that I found it on Hulu. And I had watched it. And then, of course, going back, it's not there no more. But, hey, it was on Amazon Prime, so I watched it again. Nice. And I feel like this movie gets better the more times you see it because you kind of – you get adjusted to the plot. And then you start to look at characters individually and foreshadowing and the framing and so many great things. And thank goodness the internet wasn't out because they would have spoiled the hell out of this you're right, movie and yeah. this is a movie that you can really really feel like you get something out of it if you're seeing it for the first time and you don't know what's happening and then like i said once you know what's happening you watch it again you get these other things that you love about it but the performances are fantastic and it's so funny you talked about you know our our main character being a dick because i remember the whole time i hated the husband i'm like he's such a dick like i do not like this guy i really hope he gets it and of course that's kind of what the movie's based on is him getting it and what's going to happen, but I love how unstable the wife is. I love how powerful the mistress is in this, and I love the detective. I love all the clues. I love how <laughs> you really don't know where it's going, and then when it finally gets there, I really doubt anybody predicts it.
1: No, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a great movie. And it's, you know, I think that that is a real testament to its strength. Is if it's a movie that really depends on a twist ending, then you, there's no reason to watch it a second time. But, but the great ones, when you watch it a second time, like The Sixth Sense, you start to pick up things that you missed the first time because you were just following along with where the film was taking you. And, and I definitely think Diablo League is one of those. There's a lot to enjoy about this movie.
2: So there you go. 10 great horror films from the 1950s. What do you think? Did we leave anything out? Let us know. Easiest way to uh, keep the conversation going with us is on Twitter. And you can find the Fright Club podcast now on Twitter at Fright Club Pod. And of course, our personal uh, Twitter is at Mad Wolf M-A-D-D. W O L F and we're a Mad Wolf Columbus on Facebook and Instagram and Dark Dave. I know you're also all over social media. Where can they find you?
0: Yep, if you uh, if you liked me on here, come check out my show, uh, Days Pop Culture Podcast. I do all my postings on Twitter at Phantom Dark Dave at Phantom Theories. I mean, I'm sure if you type in hashtag horror, I'll come up in some conversation. I know I go back and forth with uh, Fright Club and Mad Wolf, both t- both the guys, uh, every time. And you know, if you if you do like the Universal Monsters, go check out some of the things I just did a kind of a gathering in June where I got seven podcasts together to cover the seven main universal monster movies and so it's really cool just to if you love those movies and you want to hear somebody cover each one in a different personality and different style check them out and honestly The only reason I didn't get you guys involved in that is because I know that you're always like six months booked. And so I was thinking, man, when I do this thing next year, I'm totally going to hit you guys up.
2: (laughs) Actually, we're getting ready to uh, plan a little vacation. We're going out to uh, L.A. to visit our son. But before we do that, we have another Fright Club live coming up, the uh, August edition. That's going to be Wednesday, August 8th at the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio. And we are tackling.
1: The film we're going to show is Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is a great Send up of slashers. It's so fun. And uh, we're going to, and it's about a guy. It's like a documentary of a guy who's being trained by some of the greatest slashers so that he can sort of uh, uh, pick up the mantle. And so we're going to talk about other. Horror Mentors. That'll be our podcast.
2: All right. So that should be fun. Make that if you can. Again, that's August 8th. And uh, get in touch if you can. Until then, Dark Dave, it's been a blast. Thanks for all of your insight for the 50s. Well, we know you love it, and you brought some great movies and uh, great uh, conversation. So we appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. And everybody just pay attention to black cat shadow podcast the other podcast i'm on because this month we're releasing the episode with hope and george where we talk about
2: night gallery oh nice that was yeah i was wondering when that was finally going to drop so that's great because that's definitely one of my favorites so that's good we'll be looking forward to that so until next time she is hope madden he's george wolf and this is the fright club podcast dark dave takes out stay frightful my friends these happy days are yours
1: Wreck the Mundo!